Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Alpha podcast. I'm James Norrington. I'm joined, as always, by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, very good. Thank you, James. Excellent. Well, Phil, last couple of weeks, um, we've been a bit gloomy talking about the UK economy. I think I want to go straight into this week and start talking about one of the bright spots um, uh, for the UK economy, one, a, a rare bastion of quality on, on the, in the FTSE 100, uh, the London Stock Exchange Group. I mean, this is a great business. It's, it's got barriers to entry. It's highly profitable, um, converts a lot of its cash to profits. Why, uh, why is this such a great business? And um. <clears throat> Very simply, because it is a, a unique asset, it is, you know, it is the primary place to do business trading financial instruments in, in London and, and beyond. And, um, you know, you can't, you can't replicate that very easily, um, if at all. And that kind of scarcity leads to dominance and um, incredibly strong competitive position. And, you know, these are the kind of businesses that I actually have quite mixed feelings about these days because investors want, want businesses with strong competitive positioning, but you always, you always worry that they can get too strong and that competition authorities and regulators will look at them and decide to take a take a chunk out of them and i mean london stock exchange is a good example of that i mean european regulators have had a good look at it um and other other world regulators have had a good look at it over the last 12 months and it seems to me that um the company is coming out of it relatively unscathed but no it's just a a unique asset um you know if you if you were to invest in Stock exchanges, um, data providers, um, they've proven to be fantastic investments because of the attractive characteristics that they have. Limited competition, high profitability and, and growth. Uh, what's not to like? That's what's not to like indeed. As I was talking um, about the LSE uh, with a friend of mine who, who manages portfolios um, uh, for, for wealthy clients and uh, and said pretty much the same as you. It's just, just a, a great business. We mentioned regulators. Um, more good news for the London Stock Exchange. We've spoken um, about acquisitions the last couple of weeks. Um, London Stock Exchange, uh, it looks like it's going to get the green light from European regulators um, for the Refinitiv deal. Um, it used to be known as uh, Thomson Reuters. This is a great deal again talking it's, it's data um the management ownership of data is highly is highly valuable these days um a, a great part of the london stock exchange business is its FTSE index business anyway um so it's positioned itself well with financial data um and and this deal um the refinitive deal you've um you've done, done the numbers in your alpha report and and you think this one's going to pay back you know reasonably reasonably well and um and it looks a great strategic move by the company yeah, I mean this this deal transforms London Stock Exchange as as a business. Um, you know, make you know it it adds a massive amount of revenue and profit, and <clears throat> turns it into one of the leading global players in data. And we've seen this week that this market is consolidating uh, with S and P buying um, IHS Market. Uh, for $44 billion. Um, and London Stock Exchange is picking up Refinitiv 
for $27 billion. And you combine you combine this with the FTSE Russell business, you look at um, the fact that financial professionals, you know, they can't really do without this kind of data. You ask you ask anybody who works in the city and Wall Street, you know, they need they need this kind of data. And um, you know, your choice really is I mean you have a you have a few choices. I mean Bloomberg is obviously very prominent. Um, the old Thomson Reuters, as it was, which is part of Refinitiv now, and then you've got other players on, you know, S and P, which obviously we know we use we use S and P and we and Factset as well. We've uh, used all on, of them. On the, yeah, yeah, are uh, on the periphery, but you know, this is now a consolidating market, so actually competition is reducing. Um, that may not be a very good thing for customers. Um, in fact, it won't be a good thing for customers. And I have a sort of, you know, before I came here, I, I worked for a company that that obviously buys a lot of data. And, you know, the, you know, the prices that these guys think they can charge each year are just, are just eye-watering. The, the amount of the amount of pricing power that they have is is incredible. And, um, you know, that that's something that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, if, if the truth be told. But if I own this business, I quite like it um, because the ability to make fantastic returns for, for your shareholders is is just, well, it's just there in front of you. You know, th this is a kind of business that, can raise its prices most years, get a you know get sort of mid single digit to high single digit revenue growth. You you leverage that, and you get nice nice profit growth. And this is what the story of the LSE is about. Looks like it's about to become. And you know there's nothing nothing yet in analyst forecasts to reflect this to reflect this deal. But um, you know it will it will stack up. You know, I mean, any deal enhances earnings per share these days because of low interest rates. But it will, you know, it will make a, a reasonable return on on money invested within you know probably within three years, and so it stacks up financially as well as strategically. And this is this is this is just a great business and. Um, Whilst it looks quite expensive at the moment on about 37 times earnings, it'll look, it'll look better when refinitive numbers get put in. I think, yeah, that, that upgrade, um, potential upgrade cycle that's not there at the moment um, is good. It's, it's a reassuringly expensive company um, with, with further to go. So moving on to, to another business um, that's very profitable, um, and we spoke a bit last week about platform businesses. Um, AJ Bell um, had had encouraging numbers, um, also some encouraging, uh, not just their financials, but but uh, the growth, uh, the demographic profile, a lot of younger investors coming to the platform, which bodes well to the future. Um, didn't perform so well. They had a bit of an IT glitch um, on the vaccine rally, um, which, um, which um, you know, I think that they were keen to address, um, and they do spend a lot on IT. Um, 
but but you know this is a, another another strong business um, and another sort of the the platforms we discussed it is one area that the UK market is quite rich in. Um, just um, an AJ, but what do you like about them? Uh, two things really. I mean, I think it's plugged into well, it is. It's plugged into uh, a very favourable long term trend in that you know as a, as a nation. We need to save more. We need to get more young people saving. More and more people are looking after their own savings and investments. And they want somewhere which is cheap, convenient and reliable um, to do so. And the choice that people have is actually quite limited. I mean, there are there are quite a few platforms out there, but there are only probably three or four of them. Um, that have the sort of meaningful scale um, to invest and provide that ongoing ongoing customer service that uh, can get give people peace of mind at night and you know and also you know offer the range of investments um, that people that people want to put in their sips and ices and dealing accounts and the other thing of course is just the economics of platforms you know what what you're dealing with here is um, a business which has got a lot of fixed costs in the form of IT, staff, marketing. Uh, and marketing is, you know, you have to do marketing in this kind of business. Otherwise, you know, you just don't, you don't grow or you don't keep hold of your customers. And once the, once the profit contribution on revenue has covered those costs, you start making serious money very quickly after that. And, you know, you can see that in the in the figures, you know, the, the revenues are up 21 percent, the profits are up 29 percent, the margins are up from 35 and a bit to 38 and a bit percent. So you, you can see the see the operational leverage in there. And then you take into account that it spends. It's also investing uh, in, in, in IT, in staff, and it's still growing its profits. Um, so if you can get growth and that's an interesting issue in itself, because if you look at, if you look at the, uh, the analyst forecasts and you look at the makeup of, of the profits that have just been reported, um, it looks like there's been a huge windfall in, um, in trading revenue since, since March, um, private investors have been buying and selling shares and investments and funds with you know increasing size and regularity and and that has given a big boost um, to to the likes of AJ Bell and come through into their profit line that's probably going to be quite hard to replicate next year you would think that um, the, the trading revenue um, would come off a bit and given that most of that trading revenue is dropping to the bottom line in, in profit, um, it's interesting that the forecasts that I was looking at uh, are suggesting that profits aren't really likely to grow at AJ Bell um, for the next couple of years. Having said that, um, this week they've come out and played around with their fees. Um, they're scrapping exit fees, which is what they've been told to do, but they're also scrapping things like pension drawdown fees. 
but then they're getting it back with some quite hefty percentage increases in um, custody charges for ISAs, which are going up 40%, and SIP custody fees, which are going 20% higher. And I imagine that will deliver some profit growth. If, if, if of course, customers don't desert, and I don't think customers will desert because um, AJ Bell's fees are, are still pretty competitive. Well, there's a lot of um, platforms, they, they do benefit from customer inertia. Um, if they provide a good service, it tends to be quite sticky. Um, and and yeah, they do make their money from the assets under management that sit there, not just the churn from trading. So um, um, one area which has been controversial and, and an area you've been critical of, of firms like Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is even more expensive than AJ Bell, is, um, is, is the seemingly the quite unfair system of charging um, people more for custody of, of uh, mutual funds like unit trusts and, and um, open-ended investment companies, OICs, whereas if you're buying an investment trust or shares or an ETF, um, you, you're just paying the trading charge. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I do feel very strongly about this. I, I feel that um, this, is some, this is something that is grossly unfair to and discriminating against, against customers that, you know, I, 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 I've had sort of, conversations with people in the industry that I won't name about name but it's even they sort of have, have acknowledged to me that you know that I'm barking up the right tree on this and for me it is I just can't see how if you actually look at what these companies are doing they are they are distributors they are custodians of investments they're not really making. They're not really making anything, or provide. They're, they're they're an administrative and distributed service. And for me, I I have not had anybody yet explain to me why it costs more to hold an OIC or what used to be known as a unit trust on a platform compared with a an individual share, an investment trust, or an exchange traded fund. And, you know, I, I did, did quite a lot of work on Hargreaves Lansdowne on this and it came out and said, you know, if you had a million pound pension fund and it was invested all in managed funds, you'd be paying £3,000 a year in platform charges to Hargreaves Lansdowne. If you had it in ITs, ETFs and shares, you'd be paying £200. And this is, this is a huge windfall to the platform providers and it, you know, it's worth remembering that um, a few years ago, the, the, the payment of trail commission um, was outlawed. Um, platform providers used to, used to basically pocket um, about 75 basis points of, of fees from the fund manager. The typical management fee for a, for a unit trust or an OIC was, was about 1.5% a few years ago. Fund manager kept about 0.75 of that. 0.25 went to the platform provider for a platform fee. And 50, uh, 0.5 went to financial advisors. But the platforms actually ended up pocketing this 0.5. And a lot of it for advice that they never gave. And what they did was that they, they used that to cut the, cut the overall charges of fees to get people onto their platform and create like a virtuous, virtuous circle of 
growth, you know, getting people on, buying the funds cheaper than anywhere else, getting more trail commission, and then getting the kickback. And that was that was all scrapped. And the last bits of trail commission, I think, ended in 2016. But what the what the uh, some not all actually, but a lot of the platform providers have done is they've replaced that commission with a platform fee, and it's 0.45 at, at Hargreaves Lansdowne and 0.25 up to a cap at AJ Bell. And the, these costs are very significant for people with you know quite big portfolios, and um, you know 60 percent or 57% to be exact, of AJ Bell's revenue is coming from these ad valorem or percentage of value um, charges. And, you know, I think there's grounds for saying that, you know, both these, both Hargreaves Lansdowne, AJ Bell and perhaps others are over earning here. And, and, and I, I think, for me, for me, it's an issue that I, I feel so strongly about that I will not own an oik at all in my pension or my ISA. And you may say I'm cutting off my nose to spite my face, but I'm just not prepared to see see that amount of money go to the platform provider for doing what I consider to be nothing for it. And, um, you know, if you actually look at the revenue margin, you know, which is which gives you an indication of how much money the platform provider is making. The revenue margin is the, the overall revenue div as a percentage of the average assets under management. And AJ Bell is making about just under 24 basis points. And Hargreaves Lansdowne is making 55 basis points. So you can see there in the margin that AJ Bell is, is a lot cheaper and is making a lot less out of the customer than, than Hargreaves Lansdowne is. And that's reflected in the difference in their margins. But, you know, I, I think there's, whether, whether the competition authorities will ever look at this, I'm, I'm doubtful. But for me, it's a key, key thing to be aware of as a source of, of profit risk. And um, one that I think treats customers quite badly. So um, moving on to, to, to profit risk, um, and another company and, and um, that, that you've looked at um, that's been a, a real stalwart of your um, your quality shares portfolio um, and your your fantasy SIP, um, Avon Rubber. Now this is a company, a, a really good business that you like a lot. It makes um, it makes uh, products, uh, uh, protection gear for military and emergency services. Um, and and it's a, you know it's very few competitors. It's a it's a it's a great business niche business. Um, but but you were very um uh, you didn't like its uh, its H two revenue figures. Um, the the gro growth has ground to a halt. And even though this is a company that's made one hundred and four percent total returns for your UK um, quality shares portfolio, um, you taken the decision to take it out. So I just wanted to to get your take a bit more on on what's going on at Avon. Yeah, I, I I've come to the conclusion that. For now, things are probably as good as they can get for Avon, and not just in terms of where the business is, but you know, in terms of in terms of what drives what drives the share price. I, you know, it is it is the business that I like. I actually continue to like it. You know, in terms of the products that it's making, the, the competitive positioning that it has, 
uh, and the revenue visibility that it has. It has excellent, excellent revenue visibility. And, you know, the last year we've seen a lot of contracts uh, won, renewed. We've seen some very smart acquisitions that have made the business better, allowing it to offer a broader service to governments, basically. And we've also seen the quality quality of the business improve with the disposal of the milk business, and they got a good price for that. And investors have investors have warmed to it and, and and have put the shares on on quite high valuation. But I think you know I had a look at you know I had a quite a good look at the uh, the figures that came out uh, on Wednesday, and just as I was going through them, I just thought. Ah, not really that impressed. Um, yeah, the figures the figures were all right. You know, the, the profits were there. The profit margins were up. Um, the profits were broadly in line or maybe even slightly better than what some analysts thought. Um, but, you know, one of the key things that I, I pay attention to is it's all very well having, you know, these great characteristics of, you know, competitive position, profitability, uh, revenue visibility, barriers to entry, and that kind of thing. But you have to have growth, and the quality of growth, for me, is is very important. And it seems to me that Avon now is largely going to be driven by acquisition growth rather than selling more from what it already has, organic growth. And... There's been a sharp slowdown in organic growth uh, throughout the last financial year. And, and let's, let's remember, this is a business that hasn't really been touched by by COVID. You know, it's not it's not a business that has been badly affected. And, you know, the, the first half of the year, um, the military business was delivering organic sales growth of, of 10%. And we get to the half year sorry, the full year and, you know, organic growth for the year is, is virtually zero. And mil military revenues fell off by about 20%, just under 20% in the second half of the year. And then you start digging into, you know, the the management, you know, what, what the management are sort of talking about. And, you, you know, you look at the presentation slides, which you can look on, on the website, and they give some often give some quite good complementary information to the to the RNS statement. And there was a statement in there looking at the um, potential um, annual order intake, which obviously is a proxy for, for revenue, that this business could, could, could actually get. And you start looking at the figures and, and then you look it back and you think, well, hold on a minute. The best, the best case scenario here of revenues is pretty much already reflected in analyst forecasts, you know, two or three years out. So I start to think, you know, where, where's the upside? Where's the upside for this share now? Um, you know, the, the upside for the share, you need, you need to attract new buyers into this share. And what attracts new buyers is either something's cheap or it has earnings momentum. And Avon Rubber has neither, as far as I can see. And... Um, yeah, so I, 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 I think it's, 
I think it's had a good run. It's something that you know I'm, I may well look at again. I think it's a great business, uh, but it's highly valued with a lot of a lot of good stuff um, priced in, and, and it just wouldn't surprise me if this business doesn't, if the share price doesn't begin to tread water or drift off over the next few months. So a couple of points I noticed in your in your alpha report where, where you, you go into more depth on Avon, Robert. You mentioned that you thought that some parts of the financial statements you thought were a bit messy. I just want as listeners are very interested in how you analyze these companies. Um, uh, you know, what you meant by that and, and what you saw that you, you, you thought could have been presented a bit better in those statements. Well, I thought the, the exceptional charges, which is something that I look at a lot, um, the, the companies obviously made made some acquisitions and I, I looked at the costs, the sort of costs related with the acquisitions and there was a cost, an accounting adjustment um, of inventory. And it just, you know, that's 17 million, 17 million out of, you know, and you look at adjusted operating profits of 30 million and you can say, okay, going forward, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I thought that's 17 million pounds that's flowing out of the business here. And it's just gives a sign that I, I didn't particularly like. I thought, I thought that was a quite, quite high number. Um, the other thing as well is that the cash flow was, was pretty poor. Um, you know, the company has got a lot of cash coming in from selling the Interpols and Milkright business. And um, there was a 20, just over 20 million pounds payment into the pension fund, which obviously is a reduction of, of cash flow, which wasn't even mentioned by the company. And actually, the deficit went up, you know, d- you know despite this payment, the, the pension deficit is higher. I mean, it's not it's not an unmanageable pension deficit. But I just thought, okay, maybe you could talk about, uh, you know, one of the biggest numbers in the accounts. I always think that, you know, the company should mention mention something like that. And there was no discussion of it from what I could, maybe I missed it, but I had a good look and I, I, I couldn't see anything. And then the other thing, which I think is is very interesting and it's something that I've talked about in the past is, is the tax rate. And um, people need to be, wary of companies with with low tax rates um because it because it means that the chances are if if that tax rate rises you can have a growing business with growing revenues and growing profits if the tax tax rate is rising and the tax authorities are taking a bigger chunk of those profits the share the shareholder um can receive uh vastly reduced rates of growth and maybe not even any growth at all and um, Avon's tax rate went from was eight percent last year on an adjusted basis, and it's risen to seventeen percent um, this year. And you know this is a business now that's, that's buying two predominantly American businesses where where tax rates are you know a lot higher. Um, it's got a few things like the pension deficit, which can keep keep the tax rate down. But I just think that there's a chance that the tax rate could start to reverse out quite significantly over the next few years. Maybe it won't, but it's, but it's a risk that's, that's there. And I think that if I'm, if I'm from the position of someone coming at this company for the first time and I'm looking at, you know, potentially buying shares in Avon Rubber, um, that's something that I think you should pay a lot of attention to.
So that a um, overseas tax rate of companies, overseas earners, dollar earners is um, is something that investors should have a look at because obviously, as we all know, um, the big macro focus this week is the drama that's going on with um, the Brexit negotiations, um, which uh, I've been promising this as last couple of weeks to we'll have a talk, um, but there, there still hasn't been anything coming out, which uh, obviously the Brexit negotiations aren't down to me, thankfully. Um, but um, it, it's, uh, you know, where are we with that? And, and we're looking at the currency markets. I mean, I just I just briefly look now. Um, the pound is down to, to one euro ten at the moment. Um, so, um, but you know, we could see it dropping off to parity if, if they, they walk away uh, in the next couple of days. I don't know. I, I try not to second guess exchange rates, and um, you know, the currency market. People do look to the currency markets as a, a sort of gauge as to what's going on, but you know. The night of June the twenty third, twenty sixteen, shows that you know that the currency market can can get things wrong. I don't think anybody's surprised that um, this is going down to the wire. Um, the you know this is apparently quite normal for for negotiations with with the European Union. My my gut feeling is that there is a desire to do a deal, and you know. You read, you know, you read about what's going on, and I mean, who knows whether whether that's right. But from what I can feel is that the Germans want a deal, and and usually, what Germany wants, Germany gets, and um, I, I I think that eventually, that that will that will come to pass, uh, even if it is a kind of fudge. Um, the French, the French are obviously kicking up a stink, as are various other North Sea coastal states about fish, and um, you know, Mr. Macron may be preparing to do his General de Gaulle impression and say no. Um, but I imagine that Mrs. Merkel will be on the phone to Mr. Macron and telling him to say we, oui. <laughs> uh, and. Um, uh, who, who knows? Who knows? I mean, um, I, I think I think that uh, you know, if a deal's not done, then there'll be something put in place to make sure that it isn't isn't chaotic. I don't think there is. I mean, this is just my view, and what you know, what do I know? But you, you know, you asked me for my view, so I'll give it. And it's it's there. There is a, there is a a recognition of both sides it seems of, of a need to trade and try and trade as well as as well as they can and i think that the economics will usually usually win the day um what that means for investors i, I don't i get the impression that some sort of new you know you see the you're not really seeing much much it's difficult to read the currency markets because it's all relative and if you look at if you look at the you know the pound euro over the last few weeks it hasn't really gone anywhere and the the pound dollar is probably more more of a, a sort of reflection of of dollar weakness if you look at the dollar index you know, the dollar is you know probably at its lowest level for the last two and a half years so you can't really you can't really look into it like that but I think there's potential short-term upside in the value of the pound. Um, 
not massive, but a bit. But but you know, but long term, I, I I still see the pound as a fundamentally weak currency. I see I see nothing that's going on at the moment to, to change that view. Yeah. No. Um, well, I mean, my personal view is I I feel a bit. Um, I take heart from the sort of the the patterns of the the actors making the protest. It all seems that at the right time you'd expect a French president to to kick off. I mean, it almost seems that you know we we do seem to be towards the end game. Um, but that that would just be my my gut feel on it. But anyway, Phil, um, great to get your your views on it, and hopefully um, in the next couple of weeks this will finally be put to bed. Um, um, but in the meanwhile, um, you can read more of Phil's insights in his his weekly alpha report. Um, um, some more uh, insights in the, into the house builders as well this week, as well as uh, some of the companies we've discussed. So it's a well worth taking a look. Um, uh, and other than that, um, just wish everyone a, a good weekend. Thanks a lot, Phil, and uh, compliments on the excellent French accent earlier. Thanks, James. Bye. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like... Wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, but you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.